I can have everybody in their seats. If I can have everybody please in their seats. Yep. Have everybody in their seats. It's a rare occasion that you see the majority of our church having a sister girl moment. So I, as Beyonce came on, y'all ain't know what was going on. Put a ring on it. People didn't know whether to dance or rebuke or they didn't know what was going on. People was looking at me like, what's going on? <laughs> they don't know. I was like, hey, put that Beyonce joint on. That came from the top. Uh, two nights ago, had a great time with a group of people here. Despite the, the blizzard that did not stick to the ground, a few of us braved the storm and came here and had a wonderful time. And what I loved about Friday night was it wasn't just a game night. We spent some time really talking about like how we've been impacted, affected by COVID. People shared some things that were real, you know, real humbling and just ways that they were impacted. Part of the reason why they were saying they were there Friday night, we spent some time in prayer together and then we made ourselves look like fools in this game called Sound and Movement. <clears throat> and then we had uh, an epic EPIC, an epic game of mafia, it's epic. If mafia did win, and you, and you could tell who was one of the mafia by that. It was epic. Friends lied to each other in the name of Jesus, and it was epic. There was one, one brother who brought his kids, told me, look, we'll probably head out around 9 o'clock. You know, we'll hang out for a little bit. I was like, cool. They left at 11.37. They, was <laughs> they took part, and his, and his kids were influential. There was one point where his son was the only kid left in the game. And they were like, man, we got to vote somebody off. And so they were appealing to him. And I was like, man, how you going to go after the kid, right? So when he gave a pre, for those of you who know Mafia, they accused him earlier. He said he was a Mafia. But the way he said it was like, mm -hmm. So one guy said, hey, listen, I need you to give a better answer than shrug your shoulders. Like, why are you not Mafia? Now, I know this kid. I thought to myself, man, he's a gangster. Watch this. This is what I said to myself. He went just like this. <laughs> just like that. And I just said, man, he's a gangster. Like, I, I was like, good luck. He wasn't going for that. And he wasn't mafia. But it was a great time. It was a great time. It was good to be around. So we will be doing another game night two weeks, February 11th, right here. I think as many of us thought, we just need that. We need to be able to be together, to laugh. There were kids here. One, only, my, my kids were coming in at the last minute. Two of them said they didn't feel like going. So it was just me and my oldest son. We came, we hung out, we had a great time. Yeah. And so we'll do it again in two weeks. Also, the next day on the 12th, as Mike said, we'll be a new members class. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, one last announcement from me, and then we're going to jump in to the passage today. Uh, thank you for everyone. I've been hearing a number of, uh, of positive feedback about the biblical counseling. It's been very, I've been very, Mike and I have been very encouraged at the response to it. I just want to make, just want to say one thing when you, when you think about the case studies. 
and I, and I knew this would, this would happen. This happened when I was teaching the biblical uh, counseling team, when I was doing the actual, this happened, but did we have more time together so I could say, no, no, no. The case studies are like quizzes, okay? So when you get the case study, you're just trying to apply what you've learned to the case study. So you're not trying to figure out like any more information that's on the paper. So when you get a case study, so with the girl Leah, there were people like, I mean, but I need more information about her background. Maybe she grew up, maybe she had a bump on her leg. Maybe she, you know, what about maybe her father? That was not the assignment. The assignment is just, can you take the categories that you learned, independence, fear, and blame, and apply them to this? It's not, oh, you, it's not saying when you counsel someone, oh, that's blame. Oh, that's independence. That's not what we're, it's just, it's like taking a quiz. You learn about Columbus, you don't ask the teacher, hey, well, we need to know, like, what kind of clothes was he wearing? Like, what was his favorite food when he came on the boats? It's like, what's the information that you have? And then you just look at it and say, okay. Believe me, it's important because you have to discipline yourself to be able to do that because counseling, to be good at it, takes a lot of discipline. It takes the ability to be able to organize information and think about it. You don't need any more information than what you'll get. If you, you don't, and, and every category isn't there, right? So it's not like you're going to always see all three of them, independence, fear, and blame. But your job is to just look at it and say, okay, where do I see these? And then we'll improve on it each week, all right? So I didn't put the new case study up because I was like, let me say this first before because I think people will be wanting information and not actually benefiting from the material because you're trying to find out things that, are not, that's not where we are in the counseling process, all right? So the new, uh, the, it should be up tomorrow. The new, I wanted to wait until I communicated this first before I put the new case study up, which is part of your homework, and don't forget to memorize what? Proverbs 25. People had a heart attack when I said that. 20 verse 5. All right, two weeks ago, on this very stage, in this very seat, I said that this chapter was one of the most controversial chapters in, in the Bible, particularly chapters 9 through 11, but this chapter in particular. And I had mentioned that the emphasis, and many of you may not have asked this question or come across it or really even thought about it, but for a lot of people, the statement that Paul makes in one of these verses, which we're going to read in a moment, has created, in many ways, a... Not a bad thing, but a, a real difference of opinion on what he means when he uses the words, all Israel will be saved. So there are different theological traditions that have a way of interpreting that, and it's important because it does affect the way that you, you see the Bible. In fact, when I, when I told people that we were going to be doing Romans, both in and out of the church, one of the first questions I got was, hey, who is all Israel? Who do you think all Israel is? It's one of the first questions I said, I'll tell you when I get there. Uh, in Romans 7, I said that that was another chapter, like who was Paul talking about? Who was the I at the end of Romans 7? It's a significant chapter. Romans is a very hotly debated book in particular ways. And this, this portion of Romans 11 is one of the most debated, processed, and, and talked about because all Israel being saved means different things to different people, and it's very important to people to know who that is. And let me say this on the front end. There are different perspectives that people have about this, and we'll look at those in a second, but there are all godly people who believe different things. This, 
the understanding of who all Israel is does not in any way, shape, or form change your salvation, your destiny with, with the Lord, your discipline to honor the Lord with our lives. None of that stuff changes. But it does help some people think through particularly how to view the Jews or how does the church play a role in this. And, and so I'm going to read the passage, and then we're going to look at a couple of the ways that people talk about it, and then I'm going to offer a perspective on it. So let's, let's start with our, our main passage today. Is, is Romans 11, verses 22 to 27. And I'm going to read this, and then we're going to look at just really quickly some of the ways that people determine who all Israel is. Now, again, this isn't, might not be a big deal to you, and that's absolutely fine. For many people, it's not. But there are a lot of people that take seriously who they think all Israel is. So beginning in verse 22, this is what Paul's saying. Therefore, consider... God's kindness and severity, severity towards you. He's talking to Gentiles. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's probably plenty of views, but there are four main views that people have on all Israel being saved and what this means. There's an ecclesiastical interpretation that views that Israel and the church, it equates the same. It's that, that now everything, now that the church is established, you, pro you process these passages through the church, that that God has established the church and Israel, if they believe, they repent and believe, are a part of the church. They do not see ethnic Israel as a significant reality anymore, especially since in, in verses like Romans 9, 6, when Paul said, now it is not as though God has failed because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. So that view is more that the church is, is what's in view in the New Testament, not the nation of Israel. The church comprised of Gentiles and, and Jews, those who believe. The next view is called the total, total national elect view that takes all, the word all, it means that the elect Jews, Jews who are elected to believe in Jesus, the same way the Gentiles are by faith in Christ. So when it says all Israel will be saved, it means all the elect Jews that God has chosen, as we've talked about throughout in the past couple chapters, that God has chosen people to be saved. And so they think it's all the elect Jews represent all of Israel, not all of the nation of Israel, every Jewish person. But the elect of the Jews is what is being, it's called the total national elect view. There's another view called two covenant view that takes all and Israel at face value. So what it teaches is that the Jews will be saved throughout history because they are Jewish. They're going to be saved. What he's saying is all Jews will be saved 
throughout history, regardless of their response to the gospel, that this is a promise of God to save the Jewish people because those are the people that the Messiah comes from. So the gospel is essentially for the non-Jews only, the Gentiles, but Jews will be saved irregardless of their response to the gospel. And then there is a fourth view called the eschatological miracle view, which is probably the most dominant view today, which is that Paul is talking about all Israel will be saved. He's thinking of a future salvation, a future moment where Jews will either immediately before a seven-year period in the, called the rapture, they will be saved either before or during that time period. And then after all the Gentiles come in, the Jews will finally be saved as an ethnic entity. So they foresee millions of people who are Jewish responding and believing in Jesus, and they see this passage as Paul talking about a future day when Israel will be saved. So most likely a mass conversion of Jews to Jesus Christ. These are the four most popular views on this particular issue. And none of them, whether you agree or disagree with them, change anything in terms of your particular relationship with Christ or your mostly identity in the church. A lot of theological things that matter to people that you may or may hear about don't ultimately affect you in your day-to-day walk with the Lord, but they're important to understand because it's God's word. We want to figure out what is he saying. So those are the four main perspectives. I'd like today to just offer a slightly different perspective. And again, this doesn't mean that I'm right or anything, but the job of every pastor is to read the scriptures and not just agree with what people that you respect have said and then regurgitate that truth. That's not, this is a challenge with like denominations, like there's denominational theology, like, oh, we're, we're Southern Baptists, so we believe this. So John Calvin said this, so we believe that. Or Jacob Arminius said this, we're Arminius. So there's, there's, there's a sense of like, these are the only people that can speak to these things because they've, and that's not the role of, a, of, of Christian even. You, you, you remember in Acts 17 where Paul was preaching uh, to this crowd of people and they had this group of people called Bereans and said they were searching the Bible to see if what Paul was saying was true. In every sense of the word, every Christian should be a Berean. You got to search. Now there are limitations. Everyone doesn't have the same knowledge of the Bible and things like that. So we do trust, there's many people in the church trust what I say about the Bible because I'm your pastor. But every Christian has that responsibility. Definitely every pastor does who teaches. I have a responsibility to study and teach and I want to make sure if I communicate this that I believe it, not just because these people said it, but I actually believe it. And so in studying this passage, I just have a a slightly different perspective. So today I'm going to offer that perspective because the real issue that Paul points out in verse 25 is I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. This is a mystery that Paul is communicating. This is a mystery. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. And his impartial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It's a mystery. So again, any position will not answer all of the questions that you could have, but I intend this morning to offer a different perspective than the four that I've laid out. Uh, If you were here, 17 years ago, we were in Romans 7, and if you were here, 
There was a particular way that I taught through Romans 7 because I was trying to answer the question, who is the I that Paul's referring to in the last section, the last few verses? I'm going to take a similar approach today and, and as I did with Romans 7. So it won't be sort of line for line teaching. I'm going to look at certain things to answer this question. Here's the question that everyone has to answer if we're going to find out about who the all Israel is. Here's the question that we have to answer. What does the ingathering of the Gentiles, what does the fullness of the Gentiles have to do with the salvation of all Israel? That's the question that you have to ask. Why does, why does the fullness of the Gentiles affect the salvation of Israel? What do they have to do with each other? Now, each of these four positions have offered their perspective. I'd like to submit mine this morning. The first question I want to ask to help us process this is this. What is Paul's main concern in this portion of Scripture? In Romans 11, 17 through 24, what is Paul's main concern? Because if it's about the salvation of a future Israel, then we should see that clearly. If it's the church replaces Israel, it's about the church and Israel being, uh, elect Israel being a part of the church, we should see that clearly in his concern. What is his main concern in Romans 11, verses 17 through 24. Please join me in reading. And I quote, he says this. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted in into a cultivated olive tree, how much more would these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So what is the Paul's main concern here? His main concern is this. Paul is worried about and correcting the Gentiles' arrogance in being included in salvation. His main concern is the attitude of the Gentiles because they're included in salvation. And I think we can also assume, based on what he's saying, do not be based on these things, he's concerned with their attitude specifically towards the Jews in thinking that God may now have chosen them as his people and no longer the Jews. But there are, there are four th five things that, that are clear in this passage that prove this. His, his concern is about their attitude. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, do not boast that you are better than those branches. 
He's concerned for boasting. He's telling them. In fact, I would say he's not telling them. He's warning them. This passage is a warning. He's concerned about their attitude. Do not boast in, in 18. Look at verse 20. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but beware. This is a concern for him. Everything that he's saying, everything that he's talking about is built around these concerns. Don't be arrogant. Don't boast. He's concerned about the attitude they have towards the Jews. He says this in verse 22. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What's his concern? That you've got to remain in his kindness. You'll be cut off. He's warning them, look, yep, you see the severity towards the, the Jews and God's goodness towards you, but you've got to remain in his goodness or you'll be cut off too. The overarching concern that leads to him talking about all Israel will be saved is the attitude that the Gentiles have about their salvation versus the Jews' salvation. And then he says this in verse 23, the Jews can be saved again. It says that they do not remain in unbelief will be grafted back in. Now, if you look at the way Paul is describing this, if his attitude is towards him, Paul is not setting up a prediction of a future Israel or that the Gentiles replace Israel. Paul is using this to say, listen, watch your attitude or you too could be cut off. And then he says, even the Jews, if they do not remain in unbelief, they can be brought back in. Okay, so the point of even mentioning the Jewish salvation in this passage is not to predict the future or to replace the Jew. It's just saying the Jews can be brought back in as well. So it's a part of don't be arrogant. God hasn't forgotten them and it's all about you now. They can be brought back in if they don't remain in unbelief. This is the point that Paul's making. He's primarily concerned for the attitude of the Gentiles not necessarily the salvation of the Jews. He's correcting them and reminding them that God can bring the Jews back. And that's his point. If you were grafted in to salvation, then people who, who salvation was initially for or definitely can be grafted back in. This is the point that he's making. The mentioning of Jewish salvation is to challenge their notion that they're the ones that are being saved now and not Jews. It does not appear that Paul is looking to declare a future salvation for them, but to remind them of their place in salvation. Second observation. So Paul's main concern is the attitude of the Gentiles, not necessarily the salvation of the Jews, at least in this passage. Second observation, the language of olive tree and branch. Now, all of us read the Bible. Many of us have read the Bible, the Bible in a year stuff, but we've all read enough of the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but this is in the way of the New Testament as well. 
Symbolism is a huge deal in the Bible. If you don't read the Bible and understand symbolism, you will be confused. <laughs> There's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of ways that God speaks that he uses words that meant one thing over here, but then they mean something over here. Symbolism is a significant reality, and God uses symbolism to help people understand what he's talking about. He uses symbolism to make sure that you get who, even who are the people he's talking about. God has a way of talking about people. He has a way. There is a symbolism in this passage that is extremely important. And it's the symbolism, it's the language of olive tree. The language of olive tree and branch is a significant symbol for God. In Genesis 8, 11, this is after the flood. Listen to what this passage is, this one verse. This is the beginning of this understanding of olive and the importance of it. Genesis 8, 11, it says this, when the dove came to him at, at evening, Remember, he's in the flood, right? So he sends the dove out to check and see if the waters have gone down. The dove comes back at evening. There was, there was a plucked olive leaf in its beak. So Noah knew that the water on the earth's surface had gone down. So here is the initiation of the olive, right? It was, it was the only thing that came back. It was the olive leaf that came back into the mouth of the bird, and that's how he knew we can come out. Olive tree becomes an olive branch, and even olive becomes a significant symbol in the Old Testament, and it's used in the New. Psalm 52.8 says this, But I am like a flourishing olive tree in the house of God. I trust in God's faithful love forever and ever, says David. Jeremiah, who is a prophet who is speaking to people, telling them you are going to be punished for your sins, but also the prophets are either telling you God is going to punish you because of sins or God's going to bring you back and restore you after you've been punished. That's kind of the theme of the prophets. Every prophet is kind of telling you that. And so here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 11, verses 13 to 16. He says, your gods are indeed, he's, he's correcting them. He says this, your gods are indeed as numerous as your cities, Judah. And the altars you have set up to shame altars, to burn incense, to Baal, as numerous as the streets of Jerusalem. As for you, talking to the prophet Jeremiah, do not pray for these people. Do not raise up a cry or a prayer on their behalf, for I will not be listening when they call out to me at the time of their disaster. What right does my beloved have to be in my house, having carried out so many evil schemes? Can holy meat prevent your disaster so you can celebrate? The Lord named you a flourishing olive tree, beautiful with well-formed fruit, he has to set fire to it, and its branches are consumed with the sound of, all, of mighty tumult. So you see what's happening here? You see now that God is calling Israel an olive tree. He said in verse 16, the Lord named you a flourishing olive tree. Hosea 14. This is another passage where now God is going to be talking to them about restoring Israel and Judah. And here's what he says in Hosea 14. Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take words of repentance with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our iniquity and accept what is good so that we may repay you with praise from our lips. 
Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will no longer proclaim our gods to the work of our hands. For the fatherless receive compassion in you. And then here's God's response. I will heal their apostasy. I will, I will freely love them for my anger will have burned from him. I will be like the dew to Israel, his blossom, like the lily and, and take root in the cedars of Lebanon. His new branches will spread and the splendor will be like the olive tree, his fragrance like the forest of Lebanon. The people will return and live beneath his shade. They will grow and grain. It will grow grain and blossom like divine. His renown will be the wine of Lebanon. So here God is saying, I'm going to restore Israel. I'm going to restore them. I'm going to bring them back and forgive their sins. And he says, when I do that, says his new branches will spread and his splendor will be like the olive tree. This language is language that God uses exclusively to talk about his people. In Revelation 11, 1 through 5, here's what it says. Then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there. But exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. So we see in Genesis and Revelation this idea of olive, olive tree, olive branch. There are 453 uses of the word olive in the Bible. And some of them are just describing like it was an olive tree or olive oil. But many of them, when they were used as symbolism, are towards the people of God. It's either talking about the nation as a whole or maybe part of the nation. We'll get to this in a second, northern and southern kingdom. The use of olive branch and tree is never once in the Bible described of people who do not belong to God. Never once. Never once. Not once is olive tree, olive branch, olive leaf ever described any other people except the people that belong to God. You will not find it in a credible translation. There are plenty of other trees, too. I mean, we know this. I mean, when Jesus was coming in on a donkey, they put down what? Palm branches, right? When Jesus took fruit from a tree, it wasn't an olive tree that we know of. There are plenty of other trees. But when God uses the terminology of olive branch or olive tree, he's talking to people that have belonged to him from the beginning. It's never a nation that he intends to destroy significantly. Let's look at verse 17 back in Romans. Listen to what it says. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Now, notice what he's calling them. These are Gentiles he's talking to. We know in verse 13 of Romans 11, he says, now I'm talking to you Gentiles because I'm an apostle of the Gentiles. And he's calling these Gentiles 
a wild olive branch. Not a wild branch, not a wild tree, a wild olive branch. It's a wild olive branch. So he's saying that word olive always, and please look this up. Be a Berean. Don't trust me. If you got Logos, just type in in the search and type in olive, and you'll see, and you will not find any time where olive is discussing the people that do not belong to God. So he's calling these Gentiles a wild olive branch. The language is important. In verse 24, he says this in Romans 11. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So here's what he's saying. You were a wild, uncultivated olive tree. They were in the cultivated olive tree. I'm going to graft you in. You've been grafted into the cultivated olive tree. So how much more were these people who are Jews who weren't in uncultivated grafted back in? Let me make sure you understand. What does he mean by cultivated? He's just talking about what Paul said in Romans 9. These people in Romans 3. So what good is it to be what good with circumcision? Well, they were given the words of God. In Romans 9, he says the, the, the Jews were given the law and the prophets and the covenants and the patriarchs, right? So he's recognizing that the Jewish nation was given all these things. They were given the direct access to God and the direct knowledge on how to worship God. And in the symbolism sense, that makes them a cultivated tree. He's saying, you were a wild olive branch. You weren't given those things. You're Gentiles. You weren't given those things. But you're still an olive branch. You're part of the people of God from the beginning. He's not calling them a myrrh tree or some other tree, but a wild olive branch. And saying, I'm going to bring you the olive branch. You're still an olive branch. I'm going to bring you into the right root. And the Jews that had been cut off, they were cut off from the right root. Those who believe in Jesus, if they don't remain in unbelief, they're going to get put back in the same root. Same root. Now, we talked about what the root is. Last week, the most theologians assume that it's the patriarchs, particularly Abraham. And it makes sense. Because God told Abraham that he would be a blessing to the nations. Paul is calling Gentiles an olive branch language that is only reserved for the people who belong to God. So what is Paul saying then? If they're a wild olive branch being grafted back into the root to the people of God and the Jews who are unbelieving will be grafted back in. Well, here's what he's not saying. I've created a new branch that you all and the Jews will be grafted into the branch that you're on. He's not saying that. He's saying there's a root that's already there, a branch, a cultivated branch. I'm bringing you to that and bringing those who have been in unbelief that believe into that. So it's difficult for him to think that I'm now bringing the Jews into the church because that's a new branch. He said, no, you all are coming back to the same thing because you all are my people 
So what is he trying to say? I believe Paul is saying that the Gentiles, the Gentiles are actually the returning remnant of the house of Israel. That he's not making a distinction between Jew and Gentile and saying you're going, he's saying the Jews, the Gentiles actually are part of Israel. Paul is not envisioning an eschatological salvation and its absorption into the Gentile Christian church for the Jews. Paul's actually saying the opposite. The Gentiles are participants in Israel's salvation, not the other way around. The forgotten, uncultivated olive branch that had been long cut off is now being grafted into the olive tree of Israel. So what does that mean? Because the Bible doesn't call Gentiles Israelites. So how can you say that? How can you say that Gentiles are Israel? So here's the next question. Who is Israel? Who is Israel? Let's look at verse 25 of Romans 11. Here's what he says. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn from godless, godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So here's why this becomes confusing. Because he says all Israel will be saved when the Gentiles comes in. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes two, one from Isaiah 59 and also from Jeremiah 31. And he says, I will take godlessness away from Jacob. Okay, so here's where we have to know who Israel is. Israel is used a couple of different ways in the Bible. All right? One of the first ways Israel is used is describing the patriarch Jacob. For those of you that know the scriptures, in Genesis 32, uh, 28, Jacob was wrestling with God, and then here's what it says. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men who have prevailed. So Jacob is a human being, a man, whose his name becomes Israel. And from Jacob, these ten sons that he has and two of his grandsons become the twelve tribes of Israel or the 12 tribes of Jacob. So God will interchange when it says Jacob, talking about Israel. So Israel's used that way, right? Then there are times when Israel is described as just the northern kingdom. So you know when Solomon, David's son, became king, he sinned by allowing uh, people to worship other gods, and so God split the kingdom. And there were 10 tribes in the north, which, which had, there were 10 tribes in the north, which was called the northern kingdom, that was called Israel, and there were two tribes in the south that was called Judah. And for much of the rest of the Bible in the Old Testament, God is talking to either Israel, the ten tribes, or Judah, the southern kingdom. So they call it northern kingdom, southern kingdom. That's how, the, that's how it's broken up. And some of the prophets that you read, that when you read them, you're like, man, what does this mean? It's that prophet is, is talking to either the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom. And he's telling them, you're going to be punished for your sin, or 
in punishment for sin, God's going to restore us. That's how the prophets work. So Israel is often described as the actual human being, Jacob. It's described as the northern kingdom, just the ten tribes. But then Israel is also described as all 12 of them. So you see, this is how God, God doesn't, you know how, you can have a lot of names, right? My kids got about five, six nicknames each. Even my cat, I give him my cat three nicknames and he responds to all of them when I call him. I didn't think that would happen. I got three nicknames for my cat and he looks at me every time I call him. And there's ones that mean other to him. So if I call him one, he knows, like, oh, he can ready to give me a snack. He can tell. Like, there are multiple names that can mean the same thing, and they overlap. My kids have, like, five or six. Now, they never get confused with who I'm talking to. Well, God does this. The term Israel is polyvalent. It means it just has a multiple usage. And it can be confusing. You got to figure out what Israel is he talking about. And some people just don't even feel like dealing with it. It's just Israel. So Israel can be the patriarch Jacob, the northern kingdom, ten kings, or it can be all 12 tribes of Jacob. But then it can also be, specifically, he could talk about Israel because they're still all Israel. He also can be talking about, like, the returnees. So in Judah, the southern kingdom, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah are about the southern kingdom returning back to Jerusalem, returning back. So Daniel represents the southern kingdom, the book of Daniel, 586. The Babylonians come and take the southern kingdom because of their disobedience. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians attack and take the northern kingdom. So the ten tribes are gone in, in 722, right? And then in Judah, 586 B.C., they're taken. But there are times when the Bible talks about the Judah, southern kingdom of Judah, as also Israel. I know this is a lot. I know. I'm sorry. But I got to say this to prove this point. In Nehemiah 9, verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. But it wasn't all the Israelites. It was just Judah. It was just, a, it was just Judah. But he calls them the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. So Israel is used in, in many different ways, but these are the primary four ones. Jacob is synonymous with the nation of Israel. Normally when it says Jacob, it's talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. And when it says all Israel, that's exclusively the 12 tribes of Israel. So when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he is talking about the 12 tribes of Israel. The covenant is being made is with the 12 tribes of Israel. When you talk about Jacob, when he mentioned that, we'll come back to that in a second. Now, I am saying the Gentiles are a part of that Israel. They're a part of Israel. So when he says all Israel will be saved, he's including the Gentiles in Israel, not including Israel into the church. Now, let me explain why I'm saying this. Here's what we know already, what I've said before, that about Israel. Right? We know that it was a nation that was uniquely created. Israel did not exist, and then God said, I'm going to choose you as my nation. Israel wasn't a nation. They were Abraham. It was a guy named Abram in Genesis 12 that was from the Ur. He was from Ur. That's a Gentile. There was no such thing as, as Israel. There was no, it's not, it wasn't ethnic. There was nothing about it. He created them from them. He uniquely created this nation. 
I think, so that he could uniquely create or uniquely allow the Son of God to come from that nation. Notice that Jesus' birth is also unique. So God didn't just take any nation and say, you're mine. He created a nation from one man. Specifically, he makes that clear. I'm creating a nation from you. And in Adam and then in Noah, and then it was like, look, be fruitful and multiply the earth. But it wasn't like a specific nation. No, no. Abram, I'm creating a nation from you. I want to create the way a nation is established. And then I'm going to, instead of just having a godly dude be intimate with his wife and then be Jesus, he says, no, no, no. I'm going to uniquely set the situation in motion so that this Savior that comes from this uniquely created individual group of people is also different. So God's always doing this. We know that they're uniquely from there. We know that from Exodus 12, that when they left, the Jews left, the Israelites left, that a mixed multitude was with them, right, from the beginning. We saw that. We saw that two weeks ago. A mixed multitude left. It wasn't just Israel that left. Some Egyptians and some um, Cushites left. Ethiopians. Moses married an Ethiopian. So they left. They left too. They, were all, they all left and were all there for all of it, for the Red Sea, for the giving of the law, for being at Mount Sinai. They were there. We also saw in Deuteronomy 29 that God also made a covenant with the people who were there. Remember, it wasn't just, remember I read that it was the people that are with you, those who water your horses, those who cut your wood, the Gentiles among you I am making a covenant with. We saw that in Deuteronomy 29. That's what we know. Here's one thing I need to add now about Israel. I'm going to talk about Ephraim. Ephraim is, well, I'm going to read the story and you'll see why, but Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but he's actually Jacob's, one of his grandsons. We're going to go to Genesis 48 and look at this, and I think when you see this, it's going to start to make a little bit more sense. Genesis 48. I'm going to read fast because it's 20 verses. Y'all attention span. Praise God, it's not a bunch of names that I got to pronounce. <laughs> Here we go. Sometime after this, Joseph, I'm assuming certain things that you know about the Bible. I'm not going to explain that where everything is. All right. Sometime after this, Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he set out with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in the bed. So you see the interchange, Jacob and Israel, right? See the interchange? No, verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. He said to me, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make many nations come from you, and I will give this land as permanent possession to your future descendants. Your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me just as Reuben and Simeon do. Children born to you after them will be yours and will be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. When I was returning from Pathan to my sorrow, Rachel died along the way. It was his wife. Many of you know he worked hard to marry Rachel, and his, her father made him marry Leah first, and he was like, All right, I, you know, I work another seven years. You got me as long as I can marry Rachel. You work seven years, brother. Well done. You work seven years to get LaShawn. Well done. Tell her you work seven years to get Alicia. Well done. Praise God, you only got to marry somebody else along with that person. You know. 
Probably wasn't helpful. All right, so <laughs> verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons God has given me here. So Israel said, bring them to me and I will bless them. Now his eyesight was poor because of old age. He could hardly see. So Joseph brought them to him and he kissed and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, but now God has let me see your offspring. Then Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Then, then Joseph took both with his right hand and Ephraim, he took both of them with his right hand, Ephraim towards the left, and with the left hand, Manasseh, toward Israel's right and brought them to Israel. But Israel stretched out his hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger, and crossing his hands, put his left hand on Manasseh's head. <laughs> Although Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay, so this, this is what's happening. There's a way, the firstborn is the one that's supposed to be blessed. Right? That's what happens. And the, it's always the firstborn that's blessed. But God often will work with the younger. I'm choosing the younger. Right? So you see this happen before, too, with Isaac and Jacob. Yeah. You see that? And then you see Jacob and Esau. You see this happen with Jacob and Esau. With, with Jacob, is actually, Esau is the firstborn, but God says, I'm going to, Jacob, I love. We heard that in Romans 9. So here, what, 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 jo, what, what Jacob is doing, he's old. You got Manasseh and Ephraim. And you're supposed to bless the oldest, but Jacob crosses his hands. He crosses his hands and starts the blessing. And here's what happens. But Israel stretched out, his, verse 14, Israel stretched out his right hand to put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger, and crossing his hands, put his left hand on Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. And may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow to be numerous within the land. When Joseph saw that his hand, his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it was a mistake and took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not that way, my father. This is the one. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know. He, too, will become a tribe, and he, too, will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his offspring will become a populous nation. So he blessed them that day, putting Ephraim before Manasseh when he said, The nation Israel will invoke blessings by you, saying, May God make you Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay, so just a quick recap. These are not his kids. These are his grandchildren that God, in verse 3, appeared to him and said, take those two kids that are your grandchildren and make them like your sons, and you're going to bless them in the way that I command you. And he tells Jacob, many nations are going to come from you in verse 4. He promises a land as a permanent possession to Jacob's future descendants. Now, his future descendants include Ephraim and Manasseh. Right. Joseph's two sons were born in Egypt before Jacob came to, to belong to them. So when they come in, this is his Joseph. Jacob, for the first time, is seeing, OK, these are the two that God was telling me to make my own. And these are the two that I'm blessing. So everything Jacob's doing is because God appeared to me and blessed me. And this is what he said. And so now I'm blessing these two boys that will become nations. They've been adopted as Jacob's sons. And they become two of the 12 tribes of Israel. We see that in verses 8 and 9. 
But then it becomes interesting because in verse 17 through 19, we see that Manasseh, the younger one, is the one that is given the blessing. And Manasseh's particular blessing was this, that he will become a populous nation. Other translations say a multitude of nations. So one of the 12 tribes of Israel, one of Jacob's sons, Ephraim, from God is to be the one that has a multitude of nations that come from him. No one else, no other that I know of, that I can see in the scriptures, maybe I'm wrong about this, but no other tribe, no other son is given that designation. So the blessing of Manasseh is that, is, is he'll be a great nation, but then Ephraim will have a multitude of nations, many nations. That's coming from God. So this would be consistent with it being a mixed multitude that left, that the covenant being made. This is before that covenant. So when that covenant is made in Deuteronomy 29, it stems from the reality. This is a multitude of nations. Jacob's blessing was that Ephraim would have nations outside of Israel as a part of it, thus making it a part of Israel. That's what he's trying to say. The populous nation or the multitude of nations are his offspring. And they are never considered a non-Israel entity that would not experience the blessing of God. He didn't say he's going to become a multitude of nations that will not be blessed by me. God makes it very clear, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Remember when Abraham had, when he had Ishmael? What did, what did God say to Hagar when she had Ishmael? He said, look, I'll bless him. Don't worry, he's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He said he will rise up against nations. Nations will hate him and he will hate them. He makes it very clear, uh, but they're not the blessing. I'll make them a nation, but they're not the blessing that's coming directly from me. It has to be Isaac. God is saying here, oh, Manasseh is going to have a multitude of nations that come from him. And these aren't nations that are not included as part of the covenant I'm making with Israel. These are included, this multitude of nations. Many nations means non-Israelites. It means Gentiles. So from the beginning, God is saying the blessing that's coming from me to you, Jacob, will include you taking your two grandsons and making them like your sons. And then I'm going to bless all of the 12 sons that you have and create a nation called Israel. But one of those nations is actually going to pave the way for other nations to be a part of Israel and receive the blessing that I'm telling you, you get to have. This is what he's saying. Now, let's back to Romans 11. I know we see someone right now. Stay with me. In Romans 11, Paul describes this in verse 20. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief. So there's unbelief. And then in verse 25, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he describes unbelief, a partial hardening. Now, we hear those words and we think, okay, there's apostasy. We think of it like guys who people, leaders of Christian bands who say, I'm no longer a Christian. Walk away from the faith. Christian, former Christian rappers walk away from the faith. These people denying the faith. 
When God is talking about there's unbelief or a partial hardening, it's very specific, particularly Ephraim, because Ephraim is also interchangeably used as the ten tribes. God uses Ephraim not just as a one tribe, but also the ten, because they had the mightiest warriors. And there's so much I could tell you about Ephraim that time wouldn't allow. But here's what Hosea says. Hosea is a book of God announcing the sins of Israel, but also his ability and desire to restore them from their sins. This is what he says about, about this is how the unbelief and the hardening played out historically. Hosea 7.8 says this, Ephraim has allowed himself to get mixed up with the nations. Ephraim is unturned baked bread on a griddle. Now, that sounds all right to me, like some unbaked on the griddle. I don't know, a griddle changes things for me. But God said it's wrong, so I haven't eaten a McGriddle in years since I saw this passage. Listen to what it says. Ephraim has allowed himself to get mixed up with the nations. But Ephraim is prophesied to be the, uh, the multitude of nations, the populous nations. So in Ephraim's disobedience, they get mixed up with the nations. Hosea 8, verses 8 and 9. Israel is swallowed up. Now they are among the nations like discarded pottery. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey going off on its own. Ephraim has paid for love. Hosea 12.1. He says, Ephraim chases the wind and pursues the east wind. He continually multiplies lies and violence. He makes a covenant with Assyria, and olive oil is carried to Egypt. So you see Ephraim's disobedience, this mixing up of the nations, God allowed that, used that. Instead of them being a light to the nations, their disobedience allowed them to mix with the nations and now, but they're still a part of Israel because they're a part of Ephraim. So when God says he is restoring Israel, he doesn't see the Gentiles who believe as not his people, but they're actually a part of Ephraim because, Ephraim because he let them get mixed with the nations. And so when he's restoring Israel, Manasseh, Ephraim, is included in that. And Ephraim is going to be a multitude of people that are a part of the covenant that he made with Israel. So when he talks about restoration, he's speaking of these Gentiles, this mixed nation, this populous nation, that, that, that sin allows them now to be a part of it. He's not saying that this is about the church replacing Israel. He's saying the salvation, that I'm, the root I'm bringing you back to, is which you didn't know this. You've always been my people. You've always been Israel to me. This isn't making Israel the church. This is saying those making all salvation is through Israel. The covenant is through to, uh, uh, to Israel and Judah or to Jacob. This partial hardening in real time led them to be among the Gentiles and become the Gentiles, essentially people that are not my people. So in Romans 9, when he says, I'm going to call not my people my people, he's talking to Israel who has 
sinned against him so much that they're no longer his people, but now he's going to bring those people back. Paul's quoting this in Romans 9 to give, to make a point that is climaxed here in Romans 11. That this isn't about all Israel being saved is not a future declaration of Israel. It's not the church replacing Israel. Paul is saying when the Gentiles, the fullness of them come in, this is connected to the covenant that I made with Jacob already. So these Gentiles, what they're finding out is you're actually Israelites, but you're a wild olive branch because you didn't come up the way that they did. You didn't come up that way. So you're not in, you're a wild, you're still an olive branch. You're still my people, but you're wild. But now I'm cultivating you. I'm bringing you to the root. And the Jews who have been disobedient now when they believe in Jesus, they're going to be part of the root. Salvation is, and the covenant is made to Israel and Judah, or to the covenant made to Jacob. Look at verse 25. This is what he says. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. I will turn godlessness away from Jacob. In this sense, he's talking about Jacob, all 12 tribes of Israel, right? I will turn godlessness away, and then he quotes from Jeremiah 31, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, here's why this, I think if this is accurate, this is interesting because it's not, the covenant is made with, with, with Israel and Judah or with Jacob, all 12 tribes, that God's going to take, turn their hearts around and bring them back. Now, people have seen that as exclusively ethnic. Only people who were of physical Jewish descent. But what Paul is describing here is that that's not what he's meaning. He's saying these Gentiles, you Gentiles, are included in the plan of salvation because God ordained for you before the foundation of the world to be one of the fruit of one of the 12 tribes of Israel's disobedience. And now, because of that disobedience, I'm going to draw you back to faith. And it's not just ethnic Jews. You're also, the multitude of nations are a part of that. This is what Paul is talking about. He's not saying there's a replacement for the Jews. He's not saying the, church, the focus is the church now and the Jews are grafted into the church. And he's not saying there's a separate plan for Israel and the church is a parenthetical statement. He's saying the Jews, the Gentiles that have, are making up of the church, that we think of the church, have always been included as Israel from God's perspective because he chose Ephraim to be the one the, the multitude of nations will come in. Time doesn't permit me to get to the specific covenantal language of the Gentiles, but Paul is making a big deal about uncircumcised Gentiles being, remember, remember we talked about uh, Ephesians 3, he calls it the manifold wisdom of God was what to make the Jews are a part of salvation. Why was it a big deal? Okay, Jews are believing. Why is it a big deal? Because it's not just Jews. They're not just, why is it a big deal? Gentiles are believing. Okay, great. They were God-fearing. Look, in the temple, you know when Jesus, remember y'all know the story when Jesus flipped over tables? He did that in a part of the temple court 
where the Gentiles who feared God, who believed in the God of Yahweh, but weren't Jews, they were allowed to come and participate. So Jesus flipped over the tables like, get out of here. This is a place for people to worship, and you've turned it into a, you know, a marketplace, a den of thieves. That portion of where Jesus did that was for Gentiles. So Gentiles believing, Gentiles believing in Yahweh has, wasn't really a problem to Israelites. So what was all the fuss about Israelites and Gentiles and being circumcised? It was because salvation is to Israel, the nation of Israel. And if you're going to accept the salvation of God, you have to be an Israelite. And to the Israelites, you got to get circumcised, you got to do this, and you got to do that to be an Israelite to experience the salvation of God. And Paul was saying, no, 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 they don't have to. God has in, he's included them. He's grafting them in. Why? Because they were always a part of the nation of that God had established. So when he makes a covenant, the church, Gentiles, we're just grafted in to the salvation that God provided by faith in Jesus in the same way that Abraham had faith in God. That's who I think he's talking about right here. God has promised to restore all Israel, and Ephraim is a part of Israel, and that the fullness of the nations, the Gentiles, must be reincorporated into Israel and reunited with their Jewish brothers. And, all, and in this, all Israel can be saved by the ingathering of the nations. It is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's not a replacement. It's not two separate plans. It's the fulfillment that the Gentiles are part of them. And that's why God, from the beginning, has always let this happen. Let people come in, Ruth, the Moabitess, Rahab, all these people, because in God's mind, it was always had one of the 12 tribes would be a multitude of nations. Next week, we'll see how he celebrates this mystery. Paul goes into a, a time of worship in the conclusion of Romans 11, because I think because the point he's making is significant. That like this is a crazy mystery and he celebrates it by worshiping God. And so we'll pray and then celebrate it by taking communion. Lord, we thank you for just what, you know, Lord, even if I'm wrong, we thank you that your word has so many things that you just make so many connections and you do so many things. And we, we just see so many different, we, we import our present day into the Bible sometimes and make distinctions and don't always look at what you said. And I've been guilty of that a ton. Lord, I thank you for what I believe to be an accurate understanding of what you mean. That the Gentiles, that the Jews thought of the Gentiles as an ethnicity, but Gentiles is not an ethnic group. It's just, a, it's just people who are not Jewish in their physical and traditional sense. So the Gentiles who were a wild olive branch are still an olive branch. They've always belonged to you in some way, shape, or form. It's just now Paul is explaining why and how and making the connection so that when you make a covenant in Jeremiah 31 with the house of Jacob and, and, and Judah, we don't have to say, well, that incorporates the church and the church replaces that. No, no, no. The church is a part of that covenant. Gentiles are a part of that covenant because they're of one of the 12 tribes of Jacob. So, Lord, thank you for your word. May it be helpful. May it continue our, our trust and faith in you. And may you be glorified because this is a, if this is true, Lord, you, you, you are crazy. 
You just do the most amazing things and the connections that you make and the way you let, you let their disobedience and, and, and mixing it up with the nations and then saying, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore Israel for being a part of all the nations. But then they bring back some of the people who aren't part of the nation, but they're actually a part of the nation. Oh, Lord, you're amazing. May we have more trust and confidence and love for you, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Where you at, Mac? You got anything? Mike, like, where's Waldo? I can't even find him. Oh, no. no I was, if there's any questions, I'll take one or a couple. I shouldn't have wore a hoodie. What was I thinking? If you need communion, please get your elements. They're in the back, in the middle. Don't be that person that's too embarrassed to get up and then don't take communion today. Just go ahead and just suffer. I used to be like, man, dang, I got to walk up in front of everybody and get it. I forgot to get it. I'm good if it's not for me. I'll just keep it moving. Okay. question is, uh, knowing what we know about symbolism, the symbolism of olive branch and olives, what is the significance of uh, Hosea 12.1 where it says that um, olive oil was carried to Egypt, um, presumably being uh, brought to Egypt by Ephraim? So, so, so the book of Hosea is basically this. Hosea is asked by God, Hosea is a real man, he's asked by God to marry a woman who's going to commit adultery. And, yeah. And so, and the reason why is because God uses the adultery of Hosea's wife as a visual illustration of the adultery of Israel. So the book highlights both Israel, and I read some passages from Hosea, right, 7 and 8, I read a couple the book highlights Israel and Judah's treachery, but then also God's willingness to restore them from apostasy. So when you, when you get to Hosea 14 or 12, and he's talking about the, the olive oil, like he put, I, I think that's a simply, it's symbolism to say that they've taken the righteousness that God given them, the olive oil, in the sense that, that fragrance, and have given it to people who don't deserve that. Basically, it's a New Testament in the more deeper way, but it's like the New Testament say, don't throw your pearls to swine, right? It's kind of like that situation where it's like they've taken the olive oil, the fragrance, the beauty of the holiness of God, and have traded it in for these people's unholiness. That's the, that's the image that he's making. So I think olive oil just functions as symbolism for just righteousness. That's a great question. All right. Um, another question is, 
since Ephraim is not mentioned in uh, Romans 11 and all ethnic Gentile groups likely do not derive from Ephraim, uh, how can Jacob's promise to Ephraim be central to Romans 11? Because Ephraim is, because you have to understand the, the usage of the word Israel and how that works. And even God, I didn't get to cover it, but even God speaks about Israel and calls them, and it says Ephraim. Ephraim has done this, or he says like such and such, Ephraim is my firstborn. Or, so Ephraim is still a part of Israel, right? So the question is, because the point, because what people focus on is all Israel will be saved. But the question is like the covenant is made to Jacob. So Ephraim is a part of Jacob. He's a part of that. So all, all, all I'm pointing out in this is that the rest of the, the fact that there are Gentiles included in all Israel being saved, that is connected to the covenant that God made with Jacob that we read about in Genesis 48. That's that, that, where does that come from? The Gentiles have to come from somewhere. And then you see, oh, wow, they actually come from Ephraim. They actually come from Ephraim. That's why the Gentiles are included. So it's not a separate thing. It's no, they've always been included in God's design. It's just they, they just, the, the Israelites were so sinful, they didn't even think of it. They didn't think of it, so that's what I was saying. Good question. Um, another question uh, similar is, um, how does this reconcile with um, kicking foreigners out, in Ezra kicking foreigners out? So I think I understand what the person's asking. So we have to understand what the, what the Bible is and each, which part of the Bible is, right? So we call, typically we call the Bible progressive revelation, right? So we start with Genesis 3.15 when God tells Satan, this woman will give birth to a seed and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. He never says who that is, right? So the rest of the Bible is awaiting who the he is that's going to crush the serpent's head. And so the Bible... All of it is just progressive, like the old, like uh, uh, Galatians 3, Paul says that the scriptures saw ahead of time and preached the gospel to Abraham so that you will be a blessing. Abraham had no idea about Jesus. No, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, particularly 10 through 13, I think, talks about the, the prophets wanted to know who is this person they're writing about. And they were told, you're writing about someone that's in a future time from you. So the idea, so what happened in Ezra was just a part of progressive revelation. Like Jesus wasn't there, the, that, the, the nations were, and Ezra is really focusing on one kingdom. It's actually the southern kingdom. Mm -hmm. Ezra is focusing on the kingdom of Judah, which was Benjamin and Judah, that coming back out of Babylon and now rebuilding the temple, the temple wall. So that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are about. So it's not... It's, 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 but it's all progressive revelation. This is why Paul is calling it a mystery, like, whoa, this is now being revealed. In our, you look at Ephesians 3, Paul says similar language. This is being revealed in our time, like that the Gentiles are a part of it because it's all been a progressive plan of God to unroll it. So all the stuff that happened before was based on the knowledge that they had. So if you were Old Testament Jew and you trusted God, even though you had no concept of Jesus, God saw that as what Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. So even though they weren't trusting the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, that trusting God, I am, was trusting Jesus. So it's, oh, but it's progressive. We're getting the story revealed, and that's what Paul's trying to pull out. 
He's giving you progressively, no, 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 Gentiles are not always who you thought they are. And there are Gentiles that are not a part of that. He said it'd be many nations. It doesn't say that every Gentile, it's those who believe in Jesus, they're clearly a part of that, that olive branch. Um, <clears throat> in Revelation, it talks about uh, uh, two witnesses, um, and they are called the olive tree symbolically. Do you have any idea who the two witnesses are? So you, if you go on our, on our website, I taught about that about five, six years ago. I taught on that. I don't even remember what I said. Most people, <laughs> most people, most people think that it's talking about Moses and Elijah. Most people think the, the two olive branches, the two witnesses are talking about Moses and Elijah. And I think that's a, I think people say that because that's who appeared to Jesus at the transfiguration. Yeah. Right? It was like, they were like, oh, man. So, so it's not, it's not, I'm not, you know, ultimately no one knows who they are. Let me just be honest. No one ultimately knows who that is. Anyone who's confident they know who it is is only confident because of their perspective. Right. It's not confident because it's, it's proven. But most people would say Moses and Elijah I don't have a problem with that. But if I go back and listen to what I said, I might have a problem with it. I just don't remember. We were in a zone back then. I don't know. And you grow. like Just like us, we grow. I, we, all of us, you grow in your faith. You grow in your knowledge, right? So things that I may have taught, I wouldn't have taught this five or six years ago. I wouldn't have come to this realization, I think, five or six. But you grow in your understanding of the Bible. You grow in, in you know, when you understand how things work and how God works and reading and studying. You grow and you start to see, like, oh, okay. You don't change the main things. Mm. You don't grow and like, oh, maybe there is salvation outside of Jesus. No, no, no. But there, there are aspects. <laughs> we're not you don't grow in all things, right? But you grow in the things that, you know, you grow in your maturity. Things that used to bother you years ago, you don't bother you anymore. I've told you all plenty of times when I come from the streets, I used to smoke weed. I was, I was Snoop Dogg. I used to get high all the time. And now I can't even fathom that. There was a point in my life I thought I'll never stop getting high. I just was like, man, I'm probably just going to be 70 years old and every once in a while just... <laughs> But now it's like I can't even fathom, like, because you've grown, you grow, we grow. And so it's the same. So it's just a matter of growth, matter of understanding. So I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't, none of us really know who they are. <laughs> but it's fun to speculate, though. Right. It's fun to have fun. So right. this is the last question. Um, what does it mean when it says um, Ephraim was mixed in with all the nations as a matter of sin? Does it mean that they... Uh, were mixing practices with pagan nations around them? I think it means, that's, and that's the story of, of Israel, is to, remember, that's the story, is it's like you become like the nations around you instead of helping the nations around you become like you. That's the story. I mean, even in the New Testament, right? It says don't be unequally yoked. Why? You know, it says that because, like, what happens is no, typically, typically, godly people end up becoming ungodly when they hang with people who are ungodly. If That's, the, that's why it says don't be unequally yoked. Be careful. You know, Amos, the two walk together unless they agree to do so. You know, so I, what he's saying, the point is that, like, that it, Ephraim has become like the other nations. They've forsaken the traditions. The, uh, they've forsaken give, resisting sin. They've forsaken uh, the, the sacrificial elements. When you do sin of repentance, they've forsaken the law. They worship other gods. They call these bad... Baal and like these Asherah poles and like they there's just all these worship of other gods besides Yahweh and the whole point is like and the point that Paul's making is that hardening that unbelief allowed Israel to mix with the nations to fulfill what God told Jacob so that when he said okay I'm going to now 
restore Israel, and, and I'm going to restore Jacob, I'm going to restore Israel, those people who are a part of the mixed nations, because of what he said, they become a part of it. So that's his point. It's like Gentiles are not just Gentiles. Of, no, it's like, no, you were always included. And so salvation is in Israel, and we're just a part of that. So that's all you got? You, want, you got this joint? All right, let's stand up. We, this isn't going to be long. Um, what we've been hearing today is basically the mechanics of our inclusion as Gentiles, because most of us here are Gentiles. But what we celebrate is the functionality of what Christ has done, even if we cannot explain the mechanics beyond the question. And so um, we're just going to go ahead. We know how our salvation was accomplished. It was accomplished through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And every morning we take, every Sunday morning we take communion and we know that the wafer represents his body which was broken for us. And again, we may not understand all of the mechanics, but can't we celebrate the reality of what he's done for us? And so let us take the bread, the wafer, which represents his body which was broken for us and let us eat. And thank God that one of, the, one of the benefits of being in Christ is the forgiveness of sins. Not just the sins that we had when we came, but even as believers, if the, the uh, 1 John 1, 9 lets us know that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That book was written to believers. So thank God that there's no way that we can lose in salvation because of what Jesus has done and because of his blood that was shed for us. This juice represents that blood. So let us take and drink. And now, Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would help some who know about you but don't know you to hear of the wonder of salvation and realize that the invitation to come to you is extended to them while they have breath. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with an urgency to t let people know so that they can escape the severity and celebrate the mercy as we have done this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Have a wonderful week. God bless you. And, man, February is almost here already.